Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. We usually think of the world in terms of structures. We have a science and religion structure, then we have something which I might uh, summarize as a, a survival structure, and then of course we have entertainment. And the thing is, is that for science and religion, we tend to leave these big questions to others, and then we go about our daily lives hoping to put food on the table, a roof overhead, pay our bills, save for retirement, and all those other things that go along with surviving. And then, of course, we want to find time to entertain ourselves. But the problem is that we only have one life to lead, and it's turning out that by not questioning the big structures, and that is science and religion, we may be putting our own survival in jeopardy. And this is not just our individual survival, but maybe our survival as a civilization. Going farther, it may be that much of what science and religion teaches us is wrong, and that we may have more potential than we think. And so part of what is going on right now, I think, in our culture is that we have more and more people trying to break free of these structures, looking inside and trying to understand the human potential. I'm very happy to say that my guest today is somebody that's really been a leader in this field. Her name is Zahara Hieronymus. She is, as she will say, a cheerleader for paradise, which I think is good, but she's also an award-winning radio broadcaster, social justice and environmental activist, and professional artist. She hosted the national radio program Future Talk until 2008, and today co-hosts 20th 21st Century Radio with her husband, Robert Hieronymus. I have to say that her show is probably the best one in this area. Her list of guests have been second to none. Uh, her new book, The Future of Human Experience, Visionary Thinkers on the Science of Consciousness, assembles some of not only her own thinking, but some of the lessons she's learned from the hundreds of people she's interviewed on her radio show. Zahara, thanks a lot for being with us today. Thank you, Philip. Okay, it's well, a pleasure to be here. Okay, well, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, ha having read your book, The Future of Human Experience, and I, I think that's what this is all about, and I, I wanted to tell the listeners that if they don't know about you, they should, because I really think that uh, you break a lot of ground in this book and on your show, and I think this is very important. But starting things off, the, you you have set yourself what, into what I would call an original and even radical journey that you've been on. How did you begin your own quest? 
um, at three with a near-death experience where I deliberately disobeyed my parents' edict not to go beyond a particular baby pool line in the pool and decided that I was big enough to do what I wanted. This is my theme of life, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> that was my first actual deliberate um, almost life-threatening uh, choice to do something authority told me not to. I almost drowned. The Blessed Mother came and saved my life. I didn't learn that's who it was until like nine years later when I, on a Sunday school trip, went to a church and saw this beautiful woman that looked remarkably imagistically like this holy being who <laughs> had saved me in her arms above the pool until my mother came and saved me. So I'd say early. <laughs> yeah, it started early. And from there on out, I just was one of these souls who came in to uh, rip-roar against the status quo and found my purpose, not in doing it for the sake of doing it, but that I really you know, had to do the Socratic sort of platonic, you can choose any tradition you want, hermetic tradition, know thyself. I believed that anything I needed to know or anybody else needed to know was available to us if we got quiet, if we listened to our intuition, and we followed the markers on the trail, the little synchronicities, the little beautiful happenstances, the meeting up with somebody who all of a sudden says exactly what you've been looking for, a book falls off the shelf in a bookstore to exactly the thing you wanted to know, or you get off the highway because you had a hunch there was a big traffic jam, and you find out as you get off that, oh my God, you end up at a store where they sell these mammoth crystals <laughs> that nobody has anymore. So those are all real-life experiences. Everybody has them, all of us. Most of us don't pay attention to universe trying to give us our truths you know, really trying to um, present to us. Our soul is working to present to us the clues that we need in order to unfold our purpose and our way of being in the world. So that's a sort of symbolic hermetic interpretation um, of the hermetic path, as above, so below, as within, so without. And um, when we actually take that as our own personal guidance system, our life opens up to a really beautiful mystery tour. We become a mystery to ourselves. So, you know, as an example in my own life, um, I dropped out of college after a year and a quarter, I guess, um, pretty bored, interested in the alternative dimensions. This is 1972. Weren't a whole lot of people teaching that kind of yeah. thing. There still aren't today, right. other than outside the university structures in the academy without walls, like 21st Century Radio. Actually, the program was founded by my husband almost 30 years ago, and then we started co-hosting, and then I went out and did my own programs, and now we're back taking turns hosting our program every other Sunday, each of us hosts. So, um, and I think like yourself and anybody else who's had I don't know if you've ever experienced illness. I had life-threatening illnesses, and that sets you on a whole other course of self-discovery and meaning and purpose. And so when I had a terrible back injury as a dancer and was told by the greats at Johns Hopkins Hospital, because I live in Baltimore and one would go there, one would think, for expert opinion, and they pretty much had me pegged as a handicapped person for the rest of my life who would never dance, certainly, never run. I'd been an athlete and a runner, um, never walk comfortably and be in a metal brace or a wheelchair. So I was 19 at the time, dropped out of college, started Hatha Yoga, went to see a chiropractor and an acupuncturist. This is 1973. Yeah. Still not things on the radar in any way of right. the mainstream culture, hardly even the alternative culture, really. It was a subculture within the subculture, if that makes any sense. Um, and it changed my life. A year later, I was dancing. So by the time I was 20, 
parlaying back to a near death at three and many other things that happened in between that were interdimensional that I experienced talking to animals, hearing angels, seeing, you know, guardian beings on mountains, things that clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience experienced talking to the dead, all these things just happened to me naturally and I thought they happened to everybody. You move out into the world and you discover, no, 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 they're not happening to everybody and it's fairly taboo. You'll be pretty, you know, call a wacko. Um, But in any event, you just move on because you know you have a purpose to open the door to the kingdoms, not only for yourself, but all other souls who have taken the hard journey of putting on a body and incarnating here on learn how to use your free will, you know, university. That's free will university. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, I I think that, I mean, when you... when you think about it, our our uh, country is in many ways based upon freedom, and it's based upon thinking for yourself. I think Thoreau's Thoreau's book on Walden Pond, you know, set out you know the saying that so many of us have heard, but few people follow, which is you know essentially take your own road in life. And I think that the importance of that cannot be understated. Because I think what's happened to us in the last several decades, if not the the entire uh, U.S. civilization, is that we forget about the mystery of life and the miracle that is the universe, and we don't probe beyond the normal. And it's opening up your horizons to these to the wonder of life, the way I would put it, or the enchantment of life, that really, I think, opens up uh, the world and creates opportunities. Now, in your, in your book, The Future of Human Experience, you tell about all the many great thinkers and original thinkers that you've interviewed. And we can't go through them all now, but I, w- I would like to have you talk about... Um, some of the main takeaways that you've gotten from your years of interviews and i it's a, it's a it's a broad question but but i think it's i think it's important for us to think of, to talk about convergence because i think that we need to converge we need to center on the main themes if we're going to sell this to uh, to more people i mean so what what themes have you picked up over the years that you think are going to stay with us for a while? Well, I think a primary one is an appreciation that we're multidimensional beings, that we're eternal souls whose consciousness is outside the constraints of time and space. That's, that's a biggie for the Western yeah. world. Yeah. I think um, when I look at all the various fields, that I've interviewed people from, whether it's geology or cryptozoology, hidden animals, or off-planet travel, or inner space journeying, or meditation, or laying on of hands, or near-death experience, or reincarnation, or before-life experience, whatever it is, it all points to the same thing, which is, A, the universal matrix is held together by love, the um, reality of affinity the um, expression of inclusivity in our human experience of it emotionally. That love is the binding force and the wave, if you will, that all consciousness in all of creation is suspended in. The second 
part of that is an awareness, whether it's from physics or mystics or meditators or laboratory scientists or investigators of prayer, is that we are light beings having a material experience, but that we have creative potential and effective capacities to shape matter through word, thought, and action, obviously, but also through focused intention and attention, that if all life manifests and yet to be manifest is frequency, is light in its various expressions of wavelengths, amplitudes, frequencies, shapes, dynamic, sound, color, place and space, that all of these, like the cosmos itself, are bouncing signals off of each other all of the time. You know, I think I think so, that of all the of all the um, findings uh, in our modern world, uh, I think that that notion that we have a, an effect on what we call matter is probably to me the most profound development. And the interesting thing to me about it is that so many people are coming at it from different directions but reaching the same conclusion and I think that that particular truth is something that is quietly and slowly being absorbed in our psyche now for some people like me it's not being absorbed fast enough but specifically what I mean is from one perspective we know that quantum theory teaches that particles are not particles they're really waves or energy packets um, wave particles, or, or as some people say, nothing at all. And then we have things like the placebo effect, where, uh, where, where beliefs are affecting the, the real physical body. And then we have the mind over matter, folks. And, and so this, this to me, Zahara, is something that is really, really significant. And I sort of interrupted you there, I think I did, but, but I'd, like, I'd like to focus on this for a moment because, because to me, this is a big one. Because if we can affect what we call matter, then that means that we have real ability to change the world. And, and so, well, just at a mundane level, if I can jump in here, it's apparent that that's what we do. An architect has a vision of a building, then draws it, and then people handcraft it and build it. It didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of the idea of a person. So a person's ideas, like a creator, ship, creates from idea, from the immaterial realm of thought right. or inspiration. Right. So within the sacred societies and indigenous peoples worldwide of today and of the ancient past, this is integral to their society. It's really only the Western world that has had this dense, atomistic, materialistic approach to the universe and ourselves, making us machines and any kind of treatment mechanical rather than biodynamical, whether it's the way we treat our agriculture or the way we go about preventing illness, which we don't do much of in our culture. Instead, we have an industry of disease. So yeah. that's a very different approach than the ancients. The ancients would say, and all sacred societies will agree, that we are light beings first who then take on the cloak of materiality. So if we are going to solve the world problems of materiality, whether it's violence person against person or violence in an industry or violence as our culture of entertainment, whether it's sports or television or whatever, 
we have to examine our values. This is not esoteric. This is very mundane. Yeah. For people to believe that the answers are always somehow or other in this out there, heavenly, spiritual um, rendition, and that that's the only place solutions come from is silliness. The, the most basic of reverence will take us everywhere we need to go as a humanity. You don't even have to sit and meditate on that one. You can just say, I revere all life. So the next thing you do is you make choices in your own personal life and in the things you get involved in and the organizations you want to give money to or the issues you want to teach your children. You choose a life economy, those things that support life. So you support organic farmers and you work against GMOs, which are destroying the planetary seed bank, our health and that of the ecosystem. You stand up for the positive biodynamic organic farmers in your community when Monsanto and the state legislatures come in against whatever is moving forward in a, in a positive way. The same thing with technology. So what I'm saying is it's very nice for all of us to sit around and want these otherworldly experiences, which I do have a great deal of as we do all the time, every single one of us, we just don't know that's what's going on. We think it's nothing. We pay no attention to the fact that we've taken a walk and a turquoise has somehow or other fallen out of our pocket three months ago and we find it on the ground. Or, you know, whatever it is, the little mysteries are really the big doors, but we keep waiting for some colossal hit on the head where we have divine revelation, we're completely cosmic self-realized humans and all is perfect. Well, you don't take on a body, and if you're an adept, I w wouldn't be talking to you, and you wouldn't be talking to me. Right. So the adepts do their work. These are highly self-realized humans who choose to take on the mantle of a human vessel. Most of them you will never meet, you will never see, and you will never encounter. They do their work in a massively quiet way at a much higher octave of being. You can work in the invisible spectrum through meditation with millions of other meditators and never meet any one of them. Prayer... I might add, is the most powerful tool all of humanity has in any given language. The spoken word expresses our attention, intention, and therefore our divine will aligned with divine right order. So it doesn't have to be big things. You know, there's reasons there are ascetics, and there's reasons to go on retreats, and there's reasons to have seclusion, and I do all of these things in my life. But at the same time, I make food, I go grocery shopping, I do laundry, I cook meals, I clean the house, I nurse my dog's feet, I write books, I do radio, I pray to God for peace on earth, you know. So I think what I'm ultimately trying to communicate is the universal is in the daily. The magnificent spiritual kingdoms are in our kitchen. Anything any of us want to know about the spiritual world just observe the physical world. It's as above, so below. The bottom, the physical dense material world is a reflection of the spiritual world, and they are governed by the same laws. I think that's, I think that's very well put. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Zahara Hieronymus, the author of The Future of Human Experience and also the co-host of 21st Century Radio. And we're talking about how... Uh, the mundane is really the spirit. You know, one of the things that strikes me uh, from reading a lot of books in this area, and I see that in, in your own book you you uh, have a section uh, about Roy Kurzweil, uh, that it, it seems to me that we're either entering an evolution where we join with the machine or we join with spirit. And 
it's it's interesting that many of the leading thinkers in our world believe that we're going to be uh, humanoids joining with computers in in our future and meanwhile other folks like me for example um, and I think you uh, think that we have a reunion with spirit what, what is what is your thinking about this the the, the Roy Kurzweil approach where our, our future is going to be to become one with technology. Well, you know, Ray Kurzweil, Hans Moravec, and people like that who have spent their entire lives in robotics and developing robotic instrumentation, whether for the interior of the body or the exterior, that's their focus. And yeah. I think when we, not I think, what I understand is that whatever we focus on is what's going to pop out at us. You know, yeah. John Peterson of the Arlington Institute, who does a lot with corporate, military, and government planners to sort of look at the future, wrote a book called Out of the Blue, where he looks at how do we actually go about shaping the future, and that's why my book, The Future of Human Experience, Visionary Thinkers on the Science of Consciousness, posits that what we expect to happen has a lot to do with what's going to happen. What we anticipate finding is what we go looking for. I am not of the belief that it's either or. I think it's and this and this. I think that there is a parallel development taking place, which is a natural outcome of an industrial age. We are already attached to our computers in the Western world. Most of our emergency systems, whether it's our police, um, our dams, our hospitals, uh, our phones, our homes, are regulated by computers, computer chips, computer boards, computer manufacturers, and all that that entails. We're already part machine, part human, just in terms of the way we go about conducting our daily business. The lights go on. The refrigeration stays. Now we're moving into more sustainable technologies. Then we're going to move the machine out of the earth into the body. It's like the new territory. Where do we go into the body? People who have had contact or claim to have had contact experience with off-planetary societies or interdimensional societies or ourselves in the future, whatever these beings and their technologies are, have already engaged humanoid-like intelligence that are integrated into the machine. My perspective, however, is not that it's um, avoidable. I think this is a natural outgrowth of those who cling to materialism as the expression of divinity, is that it is not necessarily... um, it is sort of the bottom of the material wrong and the highest you can do with the material world. That's the way I'd like to say it. Instrumentation inside the body will probably be the apex of our descent into physical matter. It is not the apex. It actually could become a prison in which the human soul gets entrapped in the technology it has created, unable to any longer utilize its divine aptitudes, for example... How many children today can just read a physical geographical map? Most of them can't. They have to go onto their phones or onto their computers or onto their GPS and find out where to go. That's a really simple example of how many kids can or can't add because they've grown up with computers. We know that when we go to stores, when these young folk can't add, if all of a sudden the computers go down. How many people can't write physically anymore, physically write their name in the Western world because kids have grown up typing? And they can't sometimes even read cursive. They don't even know what that is. So these are all just little, simple, anecdotal um, descriptions 
of a culture losing its own natural aptitude. So what happens when we no longer know how to heal ourselves through prayer and meditation and instead require a robot assistant with a technological, you know, mechanical thing that has to run through our bloodstream? We gain something and we lose something. So for me, this notion that it's the answer, it's not the answer. It's just an expression of humanity in its densest physical form. And it might turn out to be, you know, one of the ways in which humanity gets preserved in space if things on the planet become too difficult to sustain human life, whether from a nuclear accident, superheating from a supernova explosion, whatever. There are a lot of extraplanetary events that will affect life on Earth, not just us. So I don't look at it as either or, Philip, and I, and I don't think it's all evil. I, I just feel like it's the bottom of the bottom, which is the beginning of our ascent back into light. And so whether it's the Hindu, the Kabbalistic, the Native American, all traditions speak that we will eventually climb back up this ladder of light, no longer require the physicality we now know and call real, even though it's just one aspect of real and reality, and that then we won't even need the robots and the machines. So it could just be one of these leaping off points for some of humanity, and others will never go through this phase. I mean, look at the third world. Most of them don't even have running water. So my concern, truthfully, is not about are robotics and evil, will we all become machines, will we lose the human soul, all possibilities. My concern is the right here and now of the disparate division between the Western world's access to technology and wisdom and knowledge and options, and then the rest of the billions of people on this planet who barely have subsistence existence, barely have food to eat, barely have medicine, barely have an education. So these are the real problems of now, and I don't get too lost anymore in the debates with um, different various groups about what will happen. I know what will happen is that if we don't turn to love and unity consciousness, we will have tremendous suffering. That's what I know. Yeah, the... uh Again, I think that, you know, it's not just the future of human experience. We're also undergoing a human experiment. And I think that that's that's the way I look at it as well. And I think that that is one of the points that you're making, which is that science itself is one long experiment. And because of the the mastery of technology and because of the development of modern technology we are looking to it to improve health and elongate our lifespans and it it has worked to a degree and I I agree that there's going to be more experiments with it Uh, my own view is that eventually the experiment fails and is proven to be inadequate I, I also think that the problem with the over-reliance upon technology is that we lose responsibility for ourselves. We think that you just take a pill or you undergo some kind of surgical process procedure and you're healthy. I, I, I do think that you have to heal the soul in order to, to heal the body. But but your, your perspective... Can, can I jump yeah, in on that yeah, one? Yeah, I don't think the soul needs healing. Hmm. I think what happens is when we come down from our soul dominion of immateriality, which is an existence that has shape and place and association and school and all the things we have down here, comes down whole, actually. 
incarnates into a physical vessel in order to have certain experiences that it needs towards its path of becoming totally self-mastered. What happens, though, is we get these layers of culture, we get layers of schooling, we get layers of whatever we're eating, you know, our, our agricultural, which ours is probably the worst in the history of humankind. Um, and these layers affect how the soul can not only express its presence in the personality, in the individuated being that has grown up in a family with place, religion, limitation, belief systems, mind control, all that stuff that each of us gets when we incarnate, gets distorted, and we lose the sense of our core beingness. And instead, we become fractals of ourself and lose sometimes that connectedness, which is why people who have near-death experiences or sometimes other altered state experiences come back feeling so whole, so loved, so confident that their path of service, whatever that service is, is the right choice and that their life makes sense to them. You know, like they found children who have had near-death experiences, for the most part, eat better than other children, are very drawn to service careers of any kind and in any way, have a much bigger picture about the purpose of love, reverence, and respect for the earth and all life on it. And it suggests to us that when we experience our soul, which I don't think needs healing, we actually heal. So it's more about the personality um, which gets um, distorted through the experiences we have while in the body. That's, that's how I see it now after all these years of all these different you so, know, tracks I've been on. So, so you're saying that... Uh, the modern culture and the belief systems that, that we ingrain in ourselves that we lose ourselves or we, we, we lose our grounding and, and, the, and the goal here is to return to our true self? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and when we do, you know, and people sometimes will say, like, I watched this documentary about people in their 50s and 60s who came out you know, they had a coming out after marriages, raising children, men together. With, and all of them were talking about the pain they endured for all those decades of not coming out to them true selves. Now, that's just one description of something that somebody struggled with. And then when they finally just said, this is who I am, how much better they felt. So yeah. somebody else might be listening who has a career in finance. And they went into it because they thought it would make a stable life and they'd have the income to do the things they wanted to do and afford their family or whatever. Somebody may have gone into it because their parents or their father or their grandfather or somebody said to them, be a respectable person, go into finance. You later discover that this is a person who loved the outdoors, who thought nothing was greater than wading into a stream and showing pebbles to children or you know, looking up at the stars at night and teaching other people about the star systems, and what did they do? They ignored this inner passion, this inner love, in a way that maybe wasn't the best choice. So here they are in their 40s, and all of a sudden they're struggling, and they can't keep doing what they're doing, and all of a sudden they turn and they say to their wife, you know what, and their children, I'm going to be an outdoor sportsman, and we're going to change our life, and we're going to downsize our house, and we're going to yeah. move to Montana. Yeah. 
you know, we hear these stories happening where people have a peak experience where in which they come into touch with their essential self. And once you do that, you cannot just turn that off. Once you've felt it, once you've seen it, once you've heard it, it's as if there's a new courage to pursue whatever it is. And, and that's what all of us are supposed to do. Every single human who incarnates, each one of us, is supposed to say, and this is what Saturn returns are for astrologically, once when you're 30, then when you're 60, then when you're 90, where you stand up and you say, here I am, this is what I take from my family, my culture, my belief systems, my schooling, my own thoughts, my own history, and this is who I am, and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, and I think and it can be it yeah. can appear radically different from what you've done, but it really isn't. It's the inner that hasn't gotten a chance to be expressed in an outer way. Yeah, and, and this is this is I think is a truth that comes home to you the older you get, because it turns out and it, it, it that it may be true that we only have one life to lead, leaving aside uh, reincarnation and various forms of afterlife, but. To me, yeah, leaving aside, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's very yeah, cute. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I always tell people we have we have one hundred percent confidence that we're sitting here now. Okay, now I I, I have not. I've, I'm asked sometimes about about reincarnation. I haven't ruled it out, uh, and I haven't ruled out um, an afterlife. But we know that we're here now, and it could be that this is the only chance we're going to get at this particular type of existence and you might as well try to get it right here well it might not be a height it might be a depth it might not be a height at all yeah it might be a depth it might be that where one learns the most is where it's most difficult to be yeah you know no no spiritual tradition speaks of incarnating as being a bliss ride every tradition speaks of it as being a workstation where you come down to earth and you get into the classroom of using your free will to learn how to make choices. And the choices generally come down to two things, either it's selfish or selfless. And generally it's a combination of the two. But a really selfish person becomes a killer. Yeah, yes. A really sp- anyway, so no. so it's not a, it's not so complicated, but I do want to say Philip to you, you are 100% sure that we're here now with one life, and I want to tell you that I'm 100% sure that we have reincarnation and afterlife and before life and interlife and universal life. So there, you don't have to worry anymore. Well, well, well good, good. Now, what what makes you so sure of that? <laughs> no, because this is... Read, this, Ibn, this is, read Dr. Alexander's new book, Proof of Heaven, oh, yeah, I did or read Map that. of Heaven. Uh, the other one was Proof of Heaven. Proof they're of they're heaven. lovely books. You know, I read, I read, I read, I read Proof of Heaven. At least I listened to Proof of Heaven. And, well, good. And and so, it, that's in, that's encouraging. But here here's my issue with <laughs> here's my issue with the spiritual. You know, this this goes into um, some. Well, see, form. to me, it's not spiritual; it's scientific. Okay. Everything is a spiritual science. Our material sciences are just so um, infantile by comparison to spiritual science. But go ahead. No. Okay. So my point is here is that. Let's suppose there is a spiritual realm, whatever that is, okay? And I don't really know what it would be. It conjures up... What if we call it a subtler realm than the dense material realm? What if we call it an energetic realm? Okay, energetic realm. Or a light realm. Okay, Mm -hmm. so so the question would be, are the beings in this... Are there beings in this realm? And if so, are they differentiated from each other? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, they are differentiated in the same way we're differentiated, but we're all working on the same thing, which is cosmic peace and right. interplanetary well-being right. and divine reverence for all of creation. I think that all planets, all societies, all trajectories, if you're on the side of evolution, I mean, our devolution, there is a centripetal spiral as well as a centrifugal one, and we go in and out of them, which is why we make sometimes good choices and sometimes bad choices. It's at the universal level, too, not just us. We're little microcosms, each one of us. Um, yes, of course, they're spiritual beings. Some of them are us, you know, who we don't have to come and manifest anymore. Some of them are other beings in other realms of guardianship where they have to stand over a mountain for 3,000 years and that's the job they signed up for. We all sign up. I don't think there's anything that happens um, in the cosmos that isn't um, purposeful. Let's put it that way. Well, this is, this is the point I was making and that is that let's assume there's an energetic realm, spiritual realm, whatever you want to call it, and there's beings and they're differentiated. Those beings still have to get along with each other. Yeah, and and so this is this is why uh, to me that's the number one challenge we face. It doesn't matter what realm you're in, that you have to get along with each other, and you have to have something in common to agree upon. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and and so so this mm -hmm. is so I don't care. People think that well I'm gonna I'm going to go into an afterlife. I'm gonna go into an energetic realm. Well, that's great. But you still have to have somebody else there, presumably, and you're still going to have to get along with him or her or whatever entities are there. And so I think that's why it all, I mean, you use the word love, and I try to stay away from that term, even though I completely agree with you, because I really, I'm trying, I always have a hard time understanding what it means, but... Yeah, it's not romantic <laughs> love. I'm not talking about yeah, romantic yeah, love. Yeah. I'm talking about a state of being, not just a feeling. Not a feeling right. based in affinity that, oh, I'm attracted to this person, and who knows, we've probably been together before, and we'll probably be together in the future. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a practice. It's a state of being, and it, not all of us can maintain it all the time, though everybody works at this which is to be inclusive, you yeah. know, to think of in each of our situation what elevates the whole. And that doesn't always mean that everybody gets to do what they want or that you give everybody what they ask, for, ask you for. It means evaluating each situation you're in and trying to determine what action can you take, not what action can somebody else take, what action can you take that will elevate the situation, both for the person doing the asking, the other people it might affect, yourself. And this can be from what you're going to buy at the grocery store to, you know, whether you have three children and each are asking for a loan and you have to decide, well, which one really needs it and whose need is greatest and for what reasons or which one is working the hardest and, and deserves the help and the other is just loafing. You know, there, all these things are real things that come up in everybody's lives. In family life, in life at the workplace, somebody, you know, cheats, uh, you know, at doing something and blames somebody else. Well, do you tell on them or do you talk to them and get them to actually admit to the group that they were the ones? So these, these are the issues of how does each one of us try not to contribute to more suffering and, and to more hardship for anybody, ourselves, the people around us, the strangers we think about what we give our life energy to 
You know, our thought, speech, and action in all traditions is the garment of the afterworld. That's what they call it. So basically, we put on the garment we've created through our thought, speech, and action while we're in our physical body. And boy, when I wrestle with that, I'm really a little afraid of what's going to be in my closet. Well, well, first of all, a couple of things there. And I think, that, you know, we are, we are uh, going where the conversation's going. I want to say, I mean, I said something about love, but I'm just going to say what I really think it is, and that is, I think it's a a uh, deep, the deepest possible appreciation for the miracle that is life, and I, it's mm-hmm. a it's a melting it's a melting in to your dream come true, and and that that I think you have to have appreciation, and I think that this this little definition of mine, it's it's I'm sure it's not original, but it's it's also applicable to romantic love in many ways, because. People are in love when they meet the, you know, the person of their dreams, at least for a, a day or two. Um, but if you don't have that appreciation for the miracle that is the world, you tend to lose sight of what it means to be alive, and you tend to not um, appreciate um, being here, there, and, and therefore not if not respecting other people, respecting the environment, respecting other cultures, religions, the whole thing. And so, so I I would agree, and I do think that education here and opening minds, like your show does, and like I try to do, is is critical to increasing appreciation for the world that we live in. Because without that, without opening minds to new ideas, to, to new visions, we, 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 we take things for granted. So, so that's, that's my little thing on love. I, I completely agree with you, but I think that ultimately is the goal. Because once you have that, once you have that sustained love, now you've got something that's going to be there forever. So, so that's my little spin on that one um on there, there's a couple of really nice uh, lines in your book that i i want to just have you say a couple of things about one of them is when humans look skyward we are essentially looking at our roots like an inverted tree can you elaborate yeah that? well well again you know the hermetic axiom that guides all indigenous peoples all sacred societies and all spiritual realms of the past, whether it's where they put their temples or how they use the equinox and solstice, deals with our relationship to the cosmos. Up until about the 1600s, every um, civilization on Earth looked skyward for how to orient their communities. And uh, the late Jean-Michel did a beautiful job of showing that they were geographically centered on territory, but more than that, they were associating um, particular lines with the heavens. So up until the 1600s, the Orion star system over the three pyramids of Giza were the celestial sky marker for longitudinal locating of where you were on the planet. It meant everybody was related because that points to the galactic center. So everything on Earth was related spiritually to the galactic center. After that, the British Empire due to the fact that every place had its own time and timekeeping, and they were trying to make it uniform so sailors could find their way at sea much easier and communicate between locations, they decided on a singular 
longitudinal marker, and it shifted, of course, it was the British Empire, to Greenwich Meridian in the UK, or in the old British Empire. And that then became the meridian marker for every site on Earth. And what we lost was our orientation to the galactic center. So it threw all of humanity off from its matrix of connectedness that all other civilizations understood. So the star systems affect us. I mean, our, our reverence for the bear on Earth comes from the fact that the Pleiades is in the Big Dipper, which is Ursa Major, and then there's Ursa Minor, the little bear, and there are cultures all over the world that speak to the bear actually holding the central axis of our planet together and gives us reason as to why there have been bear cults and there still are bear, you know, rituals. Um, so it's not just physical, it's intradimensional. And then the other thing we lost was our relationship to the moon when the church came in and enforced the Gregorian calendar that January 1st was the new year, which is fallacious and has nothing to do with the tide of life. Spring is the new year, Aries, like we've always had in the zodiacal system with the procession of the equinoxes, etc. So we lost our connection to the galaxy and we lost our connection to the moon. And in doing so, we really lost our sense of being part of something much, much larger than just our individual planetary lives that are very short. Yeah, and the uh, the beauty here, and when you were talking, and when I when I read part of your book, I I think of Emerson's line about how uh, parts of speech are metaphors because the entire world is a metaphor of the human mind, and mm -hmm. and I think that we 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 get more in touch with the universe when we view it as part of ourselves and you know my my big complaint about the modern scientific approach or the materialistic approach is that it separates the universe from ourselves and I think that the world is much more vibrant a much more enchanting place when we when we see in it aspects of ourselves and and that that I that I think is a a beautiful way to approach things, and frankly, I hope it will turn out to be the more probable and the more truthful perspective, and and so we so we start going down that down that path um, for this greater appreciation of the world we live in. Now, I, before we close, your book is called "The Future of Human Experience," and what what do you think the future is? Well. Again, you know, the, the premise is, is that what we visualize, what we prepare for, what we're willing to do to improve the earth, to improve other people's state of affairs, to improve our own behavior, to improve what we think, say, and do, has a lot to do with what the future will be. You know, we can look out as, as a intuitive or a psychic or a prognosticator and see trends. One of the trends is this terrible division between rich and poor. Yeah. Another trend is between um, the corporate consciousness and the collective consciousness. They're very different. One is hierarchical and one is lateral. There is a very big discrepancy between what I term the death economy, which is the status quo economy as we experience it today on Earth, and what needs to be established, which I call a life economy, that which everything evaluates, how what effect does the natives 
remind us seven generations down the line. Of course we don't want a nuclear plant. Of course we don't want GMOs. Of course we don't want to be spraying Agent Orange on our soy, which is actually part of this GMO phenomena of just destroying life on Earth. There's, like, nothing more serious other than perhaps a solar galactic explosion, which could really undo things pretty quickly. But So I think the future is great, actually. I think we will go through a tremendous time of upheaval over the next couple hundred years. I believe humanity will have great hardship over these next couple hundred years. But at the same time, there are other humans who are incarnating and other beings that are working with human beings who want to see us move into our next place of consciousness, which is that consciousness is in the driver's seat, not power, not money, not the corporation, not the father, not the mother not any system, not a terrorist, not a president. We ourselves, our consciousness is in the driver's seat. So to me, Philip, the most important thing for the future is for people to discover their stealth power of non-local consciousness, which means being able to see at a distance, be able to communicate with your loved ones at a distance, be able to intuit whatever it is you need or are looking for right where you're sitting, that we become our own teachers because we open our hearts and minds up to the universe that is always sharing with us that which we want to know, because the truth is, the answer is in the question. If all of us learn to ask the right questions, we'll get far different answers. Most of the time, we're asking the same old questions we've always asked, who am I, what am I, what am I going to do, versus, you know, how can I be of service? That's a different question than what am I? I'm a human becoming, like everybody else. So it's always going to be a little different. But how can I be of service in a greater way? How can I be of help to my neighborhood? You know, it's a different question when you ask, how can I be of service on the earth versus what am I going to get? Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that of that saying. I forget who, who it was who, who said that um, service is joy was the last part of the quote. But mm-hmm. but af- after, go- after, after going through... You know the you know the revelation, know thyself, and understanding that you're one with creation and and one with the spirit, the united consciousness. It it doesn't. It's not. I mean, my own view is it's not going to do much good to just sit under that tree and dwell on that. Right. Ser- service, exactly. and this is, I think, what 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 makes you unique is that you go beyond uh, the the in the the individual revelation. Uh, to under to understanding and knowing that is it's through service and it's through, as I would say, making it practical that real progress uh, would would obtain. What do you think about well, through helping others? Right. You right. know, through service is what we're all here to do, and nobody gets out of it even if they think they're out of it. Right. And and like I I like to joke, all it's all of us together, or it's all of us together. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, yeah. Well, we may yeah. think we're choosing these things, but there's no choice. It is all of us together. Yeah. And well, it is all of us together. Yeah. Well. Well, the way I put it, and it's a similar thing. I mean, we 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 are we are living in a manually operated universe whether we think so or not many of us think it's on autopilot that it just is going to it's whirling away on its own and things happen the way they happen but it but it but it is manual operated so when you give up control when you let other people make decisions when you let the pharmaceutical companies tell you what drugs to take and how to cure illnesses and 
and and how to find ultimate truth and all this kind of stuff then you you have given up control and you you and responsibility right right you know the the truth is we're each responsible for the condition of our incarnation where we're born how we go about our life and how our life's going to end and then the next one after that one so but none of us is alone because each one of us who changes and each one of us who improves our behavior and each one of us who comes a little more into self-mastery about dealing with our emotions, whatever they are, um, are offering the world really great sustenance. And I'd like to close with a thought of my own, if you don't mind, sure. which is ask you that, that peace, peace is the greatest experience that a human can have. And it is said in the, in the Judaic tradition that when God looked for a vessel to hold his greatest blessing to give creation, being peace, shalom, he gave it to Israel. And that doesn't mean the Israelite people. It means people on the straight path to deity. It's Israel's the straight path to God or to El, and then there's all kinds of debates about what that means. But to me, it's not so important what it means. Traditionally, it's, it's a it's a roadmap. It's telling each one of us that each one of us that work towards coming into self-mastery as a co-creator, because we are all godlike beings and made in the image and in the methodologies that the creator uses in these different realms of the material and the energetic and the mental and, you know, higher than that, um, that we also are learning these things. So that's what the esoteric traditions teach. And that's what I believe is now being discovered in the scientific laboratories as well, that consciousness is divinity through the human experience, and it exists as well outside the human shell. And the the beauty of that approach, and this is uh, my, my last word, I think the beauty of, of this approach where you understand that consciousness is at the center is that once you get there, there isn't going to be any change. It, it only be, it will only become more true, and that uh, that I think is something we need to hear. We need this unifying principle. After all the experiments are run, after all the tests are are over, that we realize that we are in control, and it's our responsibility to to bring about peace, which I completely agree with. And we have to have something that we can agree upon. We have to have these deep ideas, this deep idea that we can agree upon. And and I, if science or whatever we're calling it moves towards this position where quantum theory is, is already at, that consciousness is at the root, then that to me uh, means there is hope. And that we and that we will someday uh, experience the full ten, the full potential of what it means to be human and what it means to live in mm-hmm. this miraculous universe. So, mm-hmm. so I, I agree with you. I, I think the end of the story is paradise, yes. which is where the story starts. So, right, right. if the end is enwrapped or enshrouded or in the beginning, which I believe it is, uh, the end of the story is going to be really good. We have a lot of work ahead of us, and. The most important thing is to try to take care of each other in even the smallest ways possible, which can just be a smile, you know, a glance, a prayer, a positive thought, a peaceful ending, uh, that all these things are really important. They're not just little details. They add up to the universal reality that we all are experiencing because we don't just have the world happening to us. We're happening to the world. And it's it's a much better mindset. And this is... (laughs) Where I, where I think even the doubters 
have to come to. It's a much more positive mindset to take this approach where we, we are uh, in a state of co-creation. We are gods in disguise. And, and assume that is true and carry on your life as if it is true rather than imagine that we are only descendants of bacteria with no hope. So Hera, I want to thank you very much for your time. It's been an invigorating conversation, as I guess I suspected it might be. Uh, your radio show is... 21st... It's called 21st Century Radio. Everybody can go to www.21stcenturyradio.com. We are live out of the Baltimore WCBM radio area. But we also archive all of our programs, almost 30 years of it now, online for free. Not all 30 years are online, but a good bulk of it. And again, www.21stcenturyradio.com. And thanks a lot. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We'll see you next week. Take care. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.